All right, so if you have a Bible there, we're going to look at this. But look at verse 11. This kind of sets us up for what we're going to see. Because here's the reality. In a, in a church family, or especially when we talk about a church family, the, the body of believers, uh, it is a unique gathering of people. People from different upbringings, different walks of life. The church gathers together with, I mean, people who, are, uh, who, who work in a certain area or live in a certain area of the community, who have different socioeconomic statuses. All these people collectively gather together, and it makes us unique. But look at verse 11. We landed here last week in our, in our passage, but I want to just remind you of it. Because here Paul's stating, here's who you are in Christ. This is how you're to function as followers of Jesus. You should be seeking the things above, as he says in verse 1 and 2, setting your minds on things above. Then he talks about, hey, putting to death all sinful desires in your life. We focused on this last week, starting in verse 5 and following. And then he talked about how we grow towards the end of that passage in verse 10, how we grow. But then he roots it in this, this fact. I want you to see this in verse 11. He says, here, as followers of Jesus, the collective body of Christ, the church, he says, here there is not, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But he says this, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying, as a follower of Jesus, when you've been united with him, you are together with all your different backgrounds, all your different uh, views, upbringing, life, whether you're a female or a male, whether you are uh, of a different nationality, all people in Christ are one in him. But here's the thing, right? Like, I think for most of us, we like affinity. Here's what I mean by that. Affinity is, is we like to hang out with people who are like us. You know, who think like us, who act like us, who talk like us. And so, like, I mean, I, I was a high school pastor for years. I got to watch this, and I remember experiencing it personally as a high schooler, right? You end up, you see all these cliques, right? I mean, you see it. Quickly, there's the cheerleaders, there's the football players, there's the baseball players, there's your there's smart people and not so smart people. There's like most of us, right? And then there, but then there's you know your artsy type pers personalities and all these things. And naturally, those people end up hanging out together because they have affinity. But here's the calling of the church: is we're called to community, and community says. You might be this way, and you might think this way, or you might vote a certain way, and you might think this way, but as a believer, as you've been united to Christ, it brings all people of all different walks of life together, and we're supposed to function as a good, healthy family, but if you know, like, I mean, I remember me and my brother and I, we argued all the time. I mean, we, we constantly were fighting. I mean, we, I mean, uh, I have scars to prove some of those <laughs> fights where, like, he's locking me out of the house and I'm banging on a door and break windows trying to get in the house. I'm like, why did I not just knock on the window door? Someone would have opened it eventually. No, I'm like, I'm angry. So, like, punch a window. I'm going to reach in. I'm going to chase after my brother. He was way bigger than me. That was a dumb idea in the first place. And then it just tore my hand. You know, but we, we, we fight. The church also, sadly, in the church, there's disunity. There's dysfunction. There's arguing, there's fighting, and those things. And Paul is saying, here's what the followers of Jesus should like, look like. But here's our first point. If you're writing notes, I want you to write this down. Here's what Paul is getting at in this section. He's saying, behave, and really I emphasized this last week too, but behave um, consistent with your identity in Christ. We should be behaving which is consistent with your identity in Christ. You see, Paul is basing his appeal to the Colossians because they are, notice what he says in verse 12. He says, put on them. He's going to give a list here in a second. 
But here's what he identifies them as. He says this, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He describes the believers, notice what he describes them as, God's chosen ones, holy, meaning set apart, beloved, I mean, think what, what he's getting at. I, rem- I still remember this um, uh, when Josh McDowell, I remember hearing Josh McDowell. He's a, an apologist. He would speak at all these uh, college conferences in, in, in um, uh, different, um, different InterVarsity and, and some of the other different ministries on campus, campus ministries. And Josh McDowell, I remember, him, I remember one time hearing him speak, and I remember him talking. He's, he was saying how he was overhearing his da- one of his daughters talking to one of his sons and in that he said he said I could hear that uh you know because because he was like I could hear her talking because some people think oh well they're just born by accident you know my brother who is now 40 I'm 39 so he's 43 gonna be 44 um they had uh, their their son just like a couple years ago and that was a big huge surprise to my brother I mean he was he was not too happy in the moment, <laughs> and I think maybe still a little, I'm not sure. Last time I saw him, it's like, are you okay? Are you sure? Uh, with having this infant in your home. And, uh, but he was, he, was, he, was a li- he, was, he was shocked by this. They were surprised by this. And Joshua Dow was saying one time he could overhear one of his daughters, that he, his daughter that he had adopted, that they had adopted, talking to one of their biological sons. And I remember him saying this, and he was saying how the sibling was saying to the brother, how, you know, mom and dad had to have you, like they, they birthed you, right? But they chose me. <laughs> and it was the argument of like saying they chose me, like they didn't have, my, my brother's going like, he didn't really have a choice here. It was kind of a surprise, right? But here with adoption, the idea of adoption is you have been chosen, and this is the description that God's giving. He's saying you are God's chosen ones. He chose you. And not only does he chose you, he, he chose you, he sets you apart. And here he just gives you this unbelievable word, beloved, this dearly loved one. This is God's description of us in Christ. He says, you are my chosen ones. You're holy, set apart. This was language that mirrors the language of God's chosen people, the Israelites in the Old Testament. And now he's saying this as a follower of Jesus, you are chosen by him. You've been set apart by him. You've been given a purpose. You're, you're unique. You're different. You're to be set apart from the things of this world, and you are loved by him. We sang good, good father a few minutes ago. He says, I am loved by you. The thought that God would love me. I, I mean, if, you're, if you really look into my heart, I would say, God, why would you ever choose to love me? Why would you choose me? Why would you adopt me into your family? I don't deserve your love. And so here's the thing. I think our tendency as a people is to say, well, I deserve his love. I'm, I'm different than the world. I'm unique. I, have, I, I, I live a good life or I'm a good person. That's not what God's love is. God's love is not reactionary to how you function and the things that you do. God loves because he is love. God loves you because he loves you. That is the word, this, this, this amazing word in the Hebrew is called hesed. This hesed is God's unfailing, ro- loyal love towards us. I love you because I love you. And here's what, Paul, what Paul's grounding this in is he's saying, we should be behaving 
We should be clothing, he's going to use this picture of clothing. We should be clothing ourselves with the identity that we already are. He's saying, you don't do these things to be loved by God. You don't do these things to be accepted by God. You do these things because you are accepted by God. Because you are identified in Him. That is because we are to behave consistent with our identity in Christ. And notice the list he gives. So last week he gave two lists of five things. Last week he said, put away sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness which is idolatry. Then he goes on to say, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then he says, do not lie to one another. But notice now what he says. The shift is, and it all is based in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and notice this, and have put on the new self. Well, what is this new self? The new self is Christ's righteousness on your behalf. It is being clothed with His righteousness by faith. Not by works, not by the things you do, not by actions, not having a good attitude, having good thoughts, and God accepting you because you're a a decent person to society. No, because He has loved you, because He lavishes Himself for you, and He's already paid the price for you. We looked at this last week. And then now He says this. He says, put on then. Notice these things. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Now that is a good list. You're like, man, I should be more compassionate. I was thinking about this this week. I I find myself sometimes rolling my eyes at, at people's behavior getting frustrated with my kids. I remember this week, early, early this week, it was just, I probably was just in a bad mood, to be honest, and then here comes Levi or Colson or one of them, I don't even know, probably both of them at different times. And it was just like, can you just leave? Like, you're anno- like annoyed by that person. You're annoyed by their, like, maybe there's a coworker or a, a family member, or maybe sometimes it's a spouse, right? Like, sometimes there's those people that can get under your skin. And Paul is describing it this way. He's saying, we should have compassionate hearts, this word compassion is kind of like in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Is the, the Greek and the Hebrew of these words that's, that's translated in this way of compassion is rooted in like the gut, right? It's like, you know, like for instance, right, when you're ever, like if, if I were to ask you like to speak next week, like if you were to come up here and like I want you to share God's word next week, most of you would be like terrified, right? And your stomach would get all anxious and naughty and you would feel, you're like, I'm going to throw up because I'm so nervous in front of people. Maybe that's what you had to do when you had to give a speech in high school, or, or maybe when you hear terrible news, what happens, right? It's, it's gut-wrenching. Or maybe, you know, like well, sometimes like it's, it just, it, there's something that's connected to our emotions, to our, our stomach and our gut. And this is the description. We're to have such a strong emotion and passion for people. But man, how often is, is it the opposite? How often is our passion towards people described in verse 8? but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. He's saying, no, you shouldn't have that view. You should actually, when someone has wronged you, when someone annoys you, you should have compassion. And then he continues that list. He says, kindness, humility. But isn't it so easy to look down on other people and build yourself up? You know, that's that's really what the bully does, right? In school, the, the, the bully's pushing down someone else making fun of them so that he can push himself up as he's pushing them down. 
humility. It's not just a hum- like thinking like bad about yourself, like, oh, I'm not that great of a person. No, it's, as I've heard it described, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not just thinking bad about yourself. It's, no, it's thinking about other people, putting other people before yourself. Humility, meekness, very similar. And then he uses this word patience. Man, this week, how patient have we been? Whether you're in traffic or dealing with a coworker, a family member, loved one, friend, your kids. How patient are we? Paul's calling us to this kind of life. He's saying, put these things on. Clothe yourselves. Get rid of the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander. But put on these things. And then he uses this word, bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. That's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? Forgiveness. It's hard to forgive. Especially the closer someone is to you that has wronged you and hurt you, the harder it is sometimes to forgive because it cuts deep, right? It's one thing for a, a random person to make fun of you or say something like on or respond to you like, uh, you know, in social media or something like that that you don't really know that well. But the closer that person is to you, the more painful their words can be or their actions can be. And here Paul's saying we're to be these kind of people. We're to be patient with people. He says, be, be bearing with one another. And notice this, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. How hard is that? How hard is it to forgive? Like, even if you think about this past week, how many times did we, did we try to just move on? I know as, as men, at least, at least it's true for me, it's easy to kind of move on. It's kind of like you just kind of block it. You just kind of compartmentalize that. And you're like, all right, I know this person hasn't, hasn't been so kind to me or whatever. I mean, okay, it stung a little bit at first. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of move on and just keep going. Right? We can just not actually deal with the problem. We can just move on. And what happens is what, what happens in our lives and in our hearts is what comes is bitterness. Bitterness comes. And when bitterness sits into your heart, it's a cruel master. Because it's always, always wanting to just think ill of a person or to get one, a desire to get even. Paul calls, or Paul's calling us to be a forgiving people. But notice what he roots it in. He roots it in because you have been forgiven. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Here's the problem. When we're forgiving one another, I've, I've really heard it put, I've heard it put this way. Believe the best in people and, and really wade through the worst. Because it's easy to, it's easy to when something like, we, we focus on people's worst, right? And so here's what we do. When it's us, we, we you know, we want to minimize our faults. Like, it wasn't that bad. Like, when I've wronged someone else, it's not that bad. We want to minimize ours, but when, when someone else has wronged us, what do we do? We magnify it. Um, I, I don't know, some of you, you know, it's vacation season, you go to the beach and those kind of things, and, or if you go to a theme park, um, like one of the Disney parks, or di- I mean just any, anywhere, right, and there's those artists that do those character, caricatures, you know what I'm talking about, right, you have those like drawings of your kids and stuff like that, and, and, or like those airbrushed ones especially, you know those airbrushed artists that you see, like the, the t-shirt on the, on the beach and those kind of things, what do they do with those, right, like all of a sudden you're, like they take your features and they magnify them, they're like you got huge eyes, big hair, you know, big, like if your chin sticks out a little bit, they're going to make your chin stick out even bigger. They really, they really magnify the, the, the person. 
They magnify those features. And I think that's what we do oftentimes when it comes to unforgiveness, is we magnify the faults of other people. We magnify those things. We, we make them bigger than they actually are. But when it comes to us, we want to minimize them like it wasn't that big of a deal. Paul says, no, we're to be a forgiving people. And here's the, here's the great truth, though. In Christ, you have the power to forgive. You see, the only way to love and forgive people regardless of their thoughts, of their faults Here's how to love people regardless of their faults and their failures and their shortcomings. It's to recognize you are loved in spite of your own faults and failures. And this is what Paul's saying. You have been forgiven by Christ. Therefore, forgive other people. You see, it is, there's that tendency, though, for us, right? There's that tendency for us to magnify the faults of others, minimize our own. Paul, Jesus described this in the Gospels when he says, you're so focused on the speck in someone else's eye. He, he literally gives you this great visual, this cartoon picture kind of thing. He says, you're so focused on the speck, the problem, this little speck in someone else's eyes, while you have a log stuck in your own. Can you imagine what that looks like, right? You got a log, you got this two by four sticking out of your eye, and you're trying to deal with and reach to your neighbor or this person or this coworker or your, uh, the person uh, that you're married to, and you're just going to try to reach that little speck in their eye, and you're trying to do it while you've got this huge log in your own. That's how we focus on other people. We, we hold them to a higher standard than we'll hold to ourselves so often. And Paul's saying, in Christ, you have the power to forgive. But the only way you're going to do that is it, it, to be able to forgive someone regardless of their faults, to recognize you are loved in spite of your own. But here's what he's saying. Be who you are. This isn't a list of do's and don'ts like, oh, man, I'm not very forgiving. Oh man, I gotta be better, more forgiving this week. Oh, I better be more patient this week. I gotta be more loving to my spouse. No, he's saying, be who you are. This is who you are in Christ. These should be characteristics of a believer. If we looked in Galatians, we would see that this is, a lot of this list is on the fruit of the Spirit. This is what comes from the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Patience, loving kindness, uh, goodness. These are, are the fruit of the Spirit. This is who we are. You see, here's the reality, though. The law doesn't produce this kind of person. You know, one who's patient, kind. The law doesn't say, okay, well, I'm supposed to be patient. All right, well, I better be patient. Oh, the law doesn't say just, okay, well, I should, I should do this, so I better be kind and loving. No, a tree doesn't produce fruit because you tell it to. I can't talk to a, to a tree, or if you plant something this, this year, and you talk to that plant, and you're like, hey, tomato, I need a tomato plant. I really need you to produce some tomatoes. No, it's not going to respond to you telling it anything. It's going to produce from who it is or what it is. It's from its own nature. And that's what Paul's saying. This is who you are. These should be evidence in your life. So that's the first one. Behave consistent with your identity in Christ. The second is this, is let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Look what he says, continuing on. He says this. So he's telling us to put on love, all these things. In verse 15, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule. Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
You see, if you're going to function as a church and you're going to take a group of people from all different kinds of walks of life and you're going to gather them together, how are they going to function? How can we function as a church? How can we as individuals, as loved ones, as, as a group of people, as we gather together, how do we do this? How do we, how do we keep the peace? How do we function? He says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. What, he get, what he's getting at is this, uh, this word, and Paul's used it earlier in our, in our book in Colossians, it's this idea of an umpire. And he's saying, let the peace of Christ make, be the deciding factor when you're faced with decisions. When you're, let it be the decider of what is right. Let it counsel you. Uh, R. Kent Hughes tells a story uh, from the Salvation Army. And this old story uh, comes from the Salvation Army in the last century telling us a strong-willed woman who had been nicknamed Warrior Brown. Because, why? Because she was, had a fiery temper. She was often belligerent and became enraged whenever she got drunk. And then one day she was converted. She gave her life to Christ. She, had, by faith, put her trust in Jesus. And really, her whole life was wonderfully and remarkably changed forever by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And in an open-air meeting, so one time she was in this open-air meeting a week later, she told everyone that Je- what Jesus had done for her. She stood up in front of me, and this is, I mean, literally, she was nicknamed Warrior Brown. <laughs> this, <laughs> this angry woman, this belligerent woman. And now she'd given her life to Christ, and now she's standing up telling all these people who have watched her be a Warrior Brown all these years, and now she stands up in, t- in front of them and tells them that she's a follower of Jesus. And so she tells them these things, and so as she's telling them these things and saying how God's grace had made such a profound change in her life, someone in the audience took a a potato and threw this at her as hard as they could, and it hit her right in the face. And Warrior Brown would have gotten that potato and thrown it right back at him and would have charged in in the crowd. But everyone was kind of surprised she didn't do anything, and no one had heard anything. And so, as the story goes, uh, 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 some time later it passed, and, uh, and it was time for the Harvest Festival months later. And it says that that dear lady who had been known as Warrior Brown brought as her offering a little sack of potatoes. And she explained that after the open-air meeting, she had cut up and planted the, <laughs> the insulting potato. And what she was now presenting to the Lord was the increase. And what Warrior Brown had experienced had allowed the peace of Christ to be the decider, the umpire in her life. She could have, she if she was living in her, in her flesh, she could have retaliated. She could have she gone back in anger and responded, but rather, instead of responding in anger, she was allowing the peace of Christ to rule and to be the deciding factor in her life. But how often do we let our emotions get the best of us? How often in the church do we complain, do we argue do we fight or how often in our homes are we allowing the peace of christ to rule and reign in our decision making so often we're not allowing god to lead us in these areas and paul is saying let the peace of christ rule be the deciding factor in your life he transitions here to this last point that i want to cover today is this is he he tells us to teach and admonish one another with the gospel. We're to teach and admonish one another with the gospel. These should be some of the traits of the church. And notice what he says in our passage. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, this is verse 15, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Then he says this, let the word of Christ, this is the gospel, the teachings of Christ as well, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, God's Word needs to dwell in our hearts. But what does that mean? What does it mean to let God's Word dwell in us richly, as He says here? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How is the gospel, this, the, the truth of Jesus and what He has done, that He's came, he lived a sinless life, and he died the death that we deserved, and he rose again to new life so that we could too rise with him. How do we let that dwell in our hearts? You know, I think so many of us, when we read scripture or we hear the stories of scripture, we, we, we ponder them for a moment, right? And then we just move on with our day. I mean, I've heard it, right? Like, it's like when you're moved, you're watching TV and, a, and a, one of those, you know, one of those tearjerker commercials, and usually it's like, adopt a dog or something, and I'm like, okay, I mean, I, I like, have a dog, too, I like dogs, too, but they, like, got the sad music behind it, and it's like, I can't remember that lady, it's like the same lady every time, yes, yeah, Sarah McLaughlin, exactly, thank you, I was like, who was that again, yeah, that's right, and she's talking, and make, and you're like, oh, this is tragic, there's this sad, poor little dog, we gotta give it a home, and then it's like, all right, next, <laughs> you just flip the channel, right, you just move on, it doesn't sink in, right, or like when you're moved, or maybe even if you've ever, if you've ever had the opportunity to go on a mission trip, man, I would encourage you, if you go, and you see the needs of the people, and you're, you're walking, you, like, I, I remember this, when I would come home after going on a mission trip, you're trying to explain it to people, and say, like, what it was like in this village, or what it was like, and it's like, they look at you, like, they're like, yeah, yeah, they, they, they hear it, but they don't, they don't, they didn't feel it like you felt it, you ate the food, you smelled the smells, you talked with those people, you connected with people who were hurting. And then what happens? It slowly fades. Over time, you come back home, eventually you have your nice meal, you go through your drive throughs again, you, you turn your sink on, you, all those things, and quickly you forget. How often do we forget the amazement of the gospel? He's saying, it needs to dwell, but how do we allow it to dwell? We do it by teaching and admonishing one another. With it, we teach. Not only do we just let it sink into our hearts and let it sink deeply, uh, we teach one another. Sometimes we admonish, we rebuke. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Notice, he says it's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God gives us his word to teach us, to at sometimes admonish us. I mean, how many times do we have to do that with our kids, right? If you have, if you have children, you, you don't just always just say, hey, let's, let's, you know, let's just go do this, and then they do something wrong. You're like, all right, that's okay. Come on over here. Let's try something else. No, you admonish them sometimes. You get on to them. You rebuke them for bad behavior. You correct them. You see, we let God's word do that. But here's the really cool part is this. This is done through the teaching and preaching of God's word. It's done as you read God's word on your own. But it's also done, and I want you to see this in our passage. It's also done through singing. Notice what he says. He says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Notice what he says next. He continues the thought. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. 
You see, we sing these songs. We don't just randomly pick songs that just to sing a song because it's like, well, we got about an hour for a church service. Let's sing a few songs. No, these songs are meant to be an encouragement to us, to teach us who Christ is, to remind us of the gospel. Uh, when my, my grandmother, I, I know some of you um, have, have maybe experienced this personally or uh, have walked through these things or, or watched it. I know like This Is Us did this on their TV show, walking through the life of someone with dementia. But I remember when my grandmother, uh, when she first was diagnosed with dementia, um, there were signs of it before and uh, that she was just forgetful of things and, and all those kind of things. And we just kind of played off there at first. And then, and then I remember she started seeing things and thinking things were happening across the street that weren't actually happening. And, um, and she, she was starting, you could see just the, the effects of it. And quickly, it really happened pretty quickly. Quickly, she had started losing, losing a lot of weight, and she was in a, uh, an assisted living home, and they were fully, a nursing home, and fully taking care of her. And she, eventually, her body was just wasting away, and um, you could not even really have a conversation with her anymore. And I remember I was in college, and I, I was home for break or something, and came to visit her, and, and, and went into her room. She's just laying there. I mean, she'd lost, I mean, she was like 70 pounds at the time. I mean, she was tiny. She'd lost a lot of weight. She was already kind of small in, in the first place, and she barely had her eyes open. She couldn't hear, but she loved to sing, and she loved to hear her boys and her, grandbo- and her grandsons uh, sing. My brother, my brother sang in the church, and I did some too as growing up. And um, I remember one of her favorite songs was Blessed Assurance. And I remember just sitting there, and I just started to sing Blessed Assurance to her. And it was neat to watch. As she started, you could, I could see her mouth move, and her mouth started mouthing the words to this song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. And I just started singing these words, and it was neat to see how this hymn that had been, uh, had been written and had been sung for so many years in her life connected, even with someone who was losing their mind, who was not even, I mean, she was literally, she, she died of starvation because it's like your body just forgets how to eat and feed itself. You can't swallow anymore. And she's laying there, and I just started singing this song. And to watch how... The, the words of a song connected still with a brain that was wasting away. You see, God's given us this. Every revi- I mean, almost every revival through the history of the church, um, the Protestant Reformation and the Wesleyan revival, both of those, what came from that was a refocus to music in the church. Uh, John Wesley was the preacher. You know, people, people probably, most of you probably don't even know uh, some of, anything from his sermons. But what you probably do know is from his brother, Charles, and Charles Wesley, all the hundreds upon hundreds of hymns that he wrote during that time of revival. You see, worship is the response by the follower of Jesus for what he has done. And as God's word dwells in our hearts, we're to proclaim it through song to one another. You know, it really does. It reminds me. what this I think reminds me of is this is you ever see those tv shows or those movies where it's like it's been a it's been a long day it's been a long day or everyone's been working hard together or maybe they're in a a tough spot in in the army and then one guy just starts singing you know he's like whether it's in a bar or just they're gathered around somewhere and this one guy just starts singing this anthem and then another person chimes in and another and before you know it the whole group is collectively singing this anthem that we're we're okay we're going to be okay we can endure or whatever that's I, 
That's what I see what Paul is trying to get at. As we sing these songs, we are singing them to God, but these truths are being proclaimed around us so that it encourages us as the church. We're singing to God, but it's also a byproduct of singing to God is how that teaches and admonishes one another through song. You see, these are just some of the dynamics of church life, but all of it is rooted in the gospel. Who you once were and now who you are in Christ. Paul's saying, be who you are. Teach one another. Live in the gospel. Dwell in Christ's word. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Be a forgiving people. Be a patient people. Be these kind of things. Um, I want to end with this. There's a, a really encouraging book. I would, I would really encourage anyone, especially if you know a, a skeptic or someone who's like, ah, I'm not sure about all this stuff. There's a book called Reason for God by Tim Keller. I read it several years ago, and I've given it to a lot of college students over the year who are wrestling with their faith. And in that book, Tim, Deller, Tim Keller describes meeting a woman who joined the church, his, the church in New York, which was called Redeemer. And the church, it's a church he used to lead. He's now retired. He actually has pancreatic cancer. Um, and, but she had been taken to a church as a child, he tells us in his book, had been taken to, a, to church as a child, but had since assumed that we make ourselves acceptable to God by being good enough. And she had just assumed, she'd grown up in the church, but just kind of made some assumptions on the church from growing up and going here and there, that like, I'm, God accepts me by me being good enough. And then she says this, when, when, or he tells the story, then when she first encountered the gospel at Redeemer, everything changed. But if anything, she initially found it more scary, not less, which naturally provoked Keller to ask why her answer was fascinating. And here's what he said uh, in telling the story. He said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I mean, think about it, right? Like, if, if I'm saved by my works, if I'm good enough, there, there's a limit on God, what God can ask of me, because I choose I chose God, right? Like, I chose to be good enough so that God would accept me. And so in her thinking, she's thinking, well, that means, like, if, if I'm saved by that, then, then God, there's a limit on what God can ask of me. But what she was finding was the opposite. She said, I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. I think most people think that. I think it is so easy for us to think that way, that I have done my part now I deserve a good life from God because, well, look, I'm better than most people. I've accepted you, God, and here's what he goes on to say that she says. But if I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And Keller makes this crucial observation here. He says this, she understood the dynamic of grace and gratitude. If when you have lost all fear of punishment, you also lose all incentive to live a good, unselfish life. Then the only incentive you ever had to live a decent life was fear. He, says this, he goes on to say, This woman could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had an edge to it. She knew that if she was a sinner saved by grace, she was, if anything, more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. She knew that if Jesus really had done all this for her, she would not be her own. She would joyfully, gratefully belong to Jesus, who provided all this for her at infinite cost to himself. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel says 
you don't deserve your gra- his grace. You don't deserve his love. You didn't deserve his forgiveness while you were still sinner. Bible tells us in, in Romans, Christ died for you. And the call, the change and the shift is, is all of a sudden now my life doesn't belong to me anymore. Christ is in all. He is all and in all, as verse 11 tells us. My life is, as Paul said earlier in chapter 3, my life is hid in Christ. Paul will say in 2 in Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, he says, this body is not my own. Why? Because he has paid the price for it. He has ransomed me. I didn't deserve his grace, and yet he lavishes it on us. And Paul is saying, be who you are in Christ. These should be the marks of the believer. This is how the church should function. It should function with the gospel at its core. We're to be who we are. Let me pray.